the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. It's pretty indicative of the way our struggle is, to be honest with you. You know, when things are going well in our lives, we tend to forget God. We get lazy, we get apathetic, and nothing like a crisis to get us serious about Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? We can all relate. Nothing like, you know, when something terrible happens in our lives, then we cry out to God. Why does it take a crisis? You know, my prayer has always been, Lord, I want to be close to you in the good times. Please, I don't want any bad times to try to teach me that lesson. For most of us, the truth we just heard from Pastor Gary likely resonates pretty deep. When times are good, we hold our heads up high and maybe even try to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. But as soon as it all comes crashing down, our eyes are open to how helpless we really are, and we find ourselves rushing to our knees asking for divine help. In today's message, we'll be challenged to fully depend on God and remember His goodness whether times are good or bad. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Judges, chapter 8, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Lord, as we open up your word now, we pray you'd speak to our hearts. It's good, Lord, to be refreshed in your house, in your presence, so we just pray you'd fill us up And uh, teach us now as we make our way through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Judges chapter 8. Now if you're new to our study of Judges, um, this is the what we call the cycle of sin that is happening throughout the book of Judges. Uh, Israel, they live for the Lord, they glorify God for a period of time, and then they get into idolatry um, because of the influence of the surrounding pagan nations and Once they get into idolatry, they forsake God, and when they forsake God, then God allows the enemy nations to come and to besiege them, to attack them, until they cry out to God, and then when they cry out to God, God raises up a judge, and a judge is a military leader, uh, not a king, uh, not a prime minister, um, but this is a a, a leader that God appoints, that God raises up providentially to give uh, leadership and oversight to his people. And so throughout the book of, uh, and, and then as the judge then exercises his, or in a couple of cases, uh, we have with Deborah, um, a case of where a woman is, uh, leading the, the people, um, when they are being led well, they return to God, and when they return to God, there's peace in the land. And then they get lazy, 
and they fall away from following the Lord and they start worshiping the idols of the nations around them and thus the cycle continues. It's pretty indicative of the way our struggle is, to be honest with you. You know, when things are going well in our lives, we tend to forget God. We get lazy, we get apathetic, and nothing like a crisis to get us serious about Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? We can all relate. Nothing like, you know, when something terrible happens in our lives, then we cry out to God. Why does it take a crisis? You know, my prayer has always been, Lord, I want to be close to you in the good times. Please, I don't want any bad times to try to teach me that lesson. I want to be close to you in the good times. And so, you know, this is true about our lives in general. This is a cycle that is that is a classic for most of us, if not all of us. Well, in the course of the book of Judges, God raises up 12 different judges And um, there are a couple of others outside of the book of Judges into 1 Samuel, but these are the 12 that the book of Judges mentions, and we are still on number 5. We're on Gideon, and we've been here for a while because Gideon gets the most Scripture press coverage than any of the other judges, including Samson. Samson might be the best known of the judges, if you're familiar with your Bibles, but Gideon actually gets more verses written about him and his story than any of the other judges. And so um, he gets chapter 6, 7, and 8. And so we've looked at chapter 6 and 7, and now we're here at chapter 8. And just to summarize chapter 6 and 7, um, Gideon is this unsuspecting guy. He doesn't want to lead Israel. He has no ambition. and But that's exactly the kind of person God often seeks after uh, to raise up because they're not full of themselves. They're pretty, you know, humble and they're not really, you know, trying to, you know, seek fame or glory for themselves. And Gideon was one such person. He's just threshing wheat in a wine press. He's hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. Why? Because the Midianites who are enemies of the Israelites have besieged the land because, again, the Israelites have gotten lazy in their devotion to God. They've given into idolatry. So God allows the Midianites to come. The Bible tells us that their army is, figuratively speaking, as numerous as the sand on the sea uh, shore. But uh, in reality, what we find is that's a euphemism for uh, 135,000. That's how many soldiers come with the Midianites. They practiced something called scorched earth policy. The Midianites would come into the land, they would ravage it, they would uh, steal any of the food, and uh, they would take from the, the livestock, they would take from the fields, and then they would burn it. They would just burn everything. They would leave nothing uh, behind. And so this was their practice. That's why the Israelites are hiding. The Midianites are fierce. They are violent people. So the Israelites have been hiding from the Midianites when God appears to Gideon and says, I want you to be the next judge, and I'm going to raise you up to lead the Israelites against the Midianites. And you're going to defeat them because I've called you to do this. So there's a series of back and forth that Gideon has with God. Like, are you really sure I'm the right guy? And he tests the will of God. And then he finally accepts that this is God's calling on his life. And so he uh, appeals to the tribes of Israel, four tribes in particular, and he calls for men age 21 and older, that was the fighting age in Israel, to come and to fight with him in this ragtag army against the Midianites. Well, 32,000 Israelites gather around Gideon at a place called An-Horod, or also known as Gideon's Spring, right there in Israel at the base of Mount Gilboa. This is where they meet. 32,000 come. 
Now, that's a number that pales in comparison to the Midianites. They have 135,000, but 32,000 Israelites come, and, uh, and, but they're not all ready for war. Most of them are terrified. God says to Gideon, tell any of the soldiers if they're afraid they can go home. 22,000 bail out of the 32,000. So they go home. They're like, seriously, we can go home if we're afraid? Yeah, okay, we're afraid. And so 22,000 leave. They go back home, left with 10,000. God says to Gideon, you still have too many. Too many. Too many. Why is 10,000 too many against an army of 135,000? Because if there's any opportunity for humanity to take credit for something that God wants to get the glory for, that's a problem. And so God says, you have too many men because God's not going to get the glory. People are going to think that even that 10,000 might do something tricky and, you know, have uh, these incredible war tactics and maybe they could end up defeating this larger army. And God says, that's not going to happen. Not on my watch because I'm the only one who gets glory for this. And so he says to Gideon, here's what I want you to do. Take him to the spring and those who, who lap up water like a dog, who bring the water up, cup it in their hands and then lap it versus the ones who get down on their face and plant their face into the water. I want you to distinguish those men. 300 drew the water up to their mouths and God says, those are the 300, the others you can send home. And so they end up having an army of just 300. But with that army of 300, you see God's going to get the glory. And God says to Gideon, don't take any weapons, no swords, no bows, nothing. Just take torches. Each man is to take a torch, a clay pot, and a ram's horn, a shofar. And, uh, and so at night, you're going to go to the enemy camp. And uh, when I tell you, you're going to blow the ram's horns, you're going to smash the clay pots, and you're going to light the torches. And in the middle of the night, it's going to be basically psychological warfare. And that's what happens. The Midianites are startled in the middle, middle of the night. Confusion ends up running throughout the camp. They, they have a panic attack, and they literally start attacking each other. And it was God's providential way of defeating them from within. And so the Midianites end up slaughtering each other. You know, it's dark. They can't quite make out, you know, what's going on here. They've got, they see torches around them. They hear these clay pots smashing. They hear the sound of trumpets. They think this huge army is upon them and they start slaughtering each other. Okay. So now 120,000 of the 135 uh, are dead. There's still 15,000 that they're going to be in pursuit of here. But this is where we are now at chapter 8. So look at verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, that is to Gideon, uh, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. And so he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Now, what Gideon is doing here is he's basically killing them with kindness. They are complaining that he did not ask them to engage in the war against the Midianites. Well, in fact, Gideon only asked four out of the 12 tribes of Israel to come fight with him. And Ephraim was not one of them. So they're miffed. They're like, hey, we want in on the action. And you only called us at the last minute. You, you only called us when they, when they were retreating to chase after them. But why didn't you call us to begin with? And Gideon's like, listen, listen, listen. 
you people of Ephraim. Don't you have the best vineyards in all of the, in all of the tribes? I mean, you, you guys do great work in the vineyards. You know, you got these great wineries happening in western Ephraim, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, people are coming for their cheese and wine parties and you guys are just, you know, you got masterful at that. And, you know, I just didn't want to disturb you. You guys are incredible. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, we're not mad at you anymore. And, and that's what he does. He just, you know, kills him with kindness. And verse four says, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted, but still in pursuit. Okay. Still in pursuit of the 15,000 out of the 135. And then he said to the men of Sukkoth, so these are fellow Israelites, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkot said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Okay, what they're saying, they're, ta- they're, they're unfortunately, they're taunting Gideon a little bit. They're like, we don't really see the kings. Like, you haven't, like, really captured them. You're in pursuit. Okay, well, whatever that means. But you haven't actually captured them. Why should we give you any of our bread? Like, this isn't a victory celebration. You haven't actually captured them yet. Well, this, this ticks Gideon off. So, verse 7. So, Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to whip you with thorns when I come back. And then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. And so he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. It's like he's not getting any help. You know, even his own fellow Israelites are not giving bread to the army. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're hungry. But he can't seem to find help along the way. The people of Sukkot, the people of Penuel say, no, you haven't actually been victorious yet. We're not going to give you any bread. Verse 10. Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them about 15,000. All who were left of all the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Okay, and so this is the math. This is how we come to understand that the whole Midianite army of the east is 135,000. We have 15,000 who were still, you know, uh, alive and 120 who have, who have perished. Verse 11 says, then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jagibah. And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Okay, so he's got now just these two kings who are left. This is all part of warfare. I know this, you know, some of the Bible is difficult when you read all the bloodshed, but this is, this is the way it went down. Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Herez, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. And then he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and 
and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot. He's going to take them to school. That's what that, that's what that, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you a lesson here. He taught them, and then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he, he makes good on his promise. He's like, you guys, you wouldn't even help your brothers with bread. I'm coming back. And he comes back. You know, as the judge of Israel, he judges them in this way. And verse 18, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And then he said, this is Gideon, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had left, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Okay, so what we find out in this conversation, he's got these two Midianite kings as prisoners of war now. He's taken them captive, and he and he says, tell me again, who were those people you killed in Tabor? Now, they probably didn't know that they were Gideon's brothers, but when they say, well, they were, you know, they look like you, and uh, and they could pass for sons of a king, then Gideon springs it on them and says, yeah, those guys you killed were my brothers. So there's no other previous reference to this other than right here. And, and so Gideon wanted these two Midianite kings to admit they had killed his brothers. Now, Gideon does something here that, uh, you know, is troubling. But look at, at verse uh, 20. And he said to Jether, his firstborn. So this, Gideon turns to his firstborn son and he says, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Uh, you know, I, I suppose, you know, back in these days, this is an opportunity for, you know, dad to get their son to uh, show themselves as war ready. And uh, you can be a hero right here and put a sword into the enemy kings. But this guy's a youth. We don't know how old he is, but um, he refuses to do it. And so then those Midianite kings taunt Gideon a little bit. The next verse, verse 21, so Zeba and Zalmunna say, said, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. So the Midianites are gone now. This is the end. And uh, he, he puts the sword to them. And of course, you know, God is really the one who turned the Midianites on themselves, and God's the one who brought about this victory. Sadly, I wish it weren't so, but uh, a lot of times you see in the Bible these leaders, and you see in modern times too, you see these leaders who are on a good track, they're, they're serving God, they're doing well, and then they take a left turn. And that's what's going to happen here with Gideon. He is going to make an idol. What we find about Gideon is, to be honest, he seems to be a man who fares better during adversity than he does during success. And unfortunately, that's true for a lot of people. It's like, you know, when you're going through adversity, kind of referring back to comments I made earlier in the study, when you're going through adversity, it it really presses you closer to the Lord. Not always. Some people through adversity run from God. But a lot of times, when you're going through adversity, it presses you into the Lord. 
When Gideon was just threshing wheat in a wine press because the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites, and Gideon is just like, I don't really want to be a leader. You know, he's just surviving. He's just clinging to God. He's, you know, he sees the Midianites, the oppression against his fellow Israelites, including himself and his own family, and that adversity has caused him to really press into God and um, and to be this reluctant leader that God has raised up. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll be a judge and I'll be this military leader. Okay, God, I'll do this. And you get this sense that he's just, you know, he's really close to the Lord during this time. I mean, the Lord appears to him and he, and he, and he does this whole testing of God's will with the whole fleece thing and all of that. So he's close to the Lord. But unfortunately, what tends to happen sometimes is then we get, you know, successful and successful in this context is he's defeated the armies. The Israelites love him. He's this, you know, powerful leader. Now he has proven himself. Um, to have some pretty good street cred at this point now. You know, you've successfully, with God's help and God's guidance, defeated this oppressive army. I mean, the nation loves you now. His poll, his poll numbers were sky high. You know what I'm saying to you? And, and yet, during this successful time, he gets lazy. And, and what we're going to read here is he makes this idol. And it's a strange idol. Now, I want you to read further with me. So verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Okay, so they love him. But Gideon said to them, now, to his credit, look what he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. So to his credit, he's like, I'm not going to be your king because God is king. Unfortunately, what we're going to see here is that even though Gideon says, I don't want to be your king, he's going to act like one. And, and, I'll, and I'll show you at the end of the chapter exactly, we'll summarize what we're, what we're reading here. Verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings, the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So, Ishmaelites is another term for the Midianites. So the Midianites, you know, had these golden earrings. Um, you know, we, we think things are new fads. Look, guys wearing earrings have been going on for thousands of years. It's nothing new, okay? The Ishmaelites were, you know, like pretty decked out with, you know, gold earrings. And, and so when the Israelites, you know, killed, or the Midianites killed themselves, um, Midianites slash Ishmaelites, then as plunder, the Israelites soldiers went around pulling the earrings off of all the Ishmaelite soldiers. So they have all these gold earrings. And Gideon, now this is going to be one of the first things that shows, even though he says, I don't want to be your king, he's acting like one. He says, I want your gold. Give me your plunder. So they spread out a garment. They answer, we gladly will. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now, you know, listen, you got 120,000, another 15,000, you got 135,000 soldiers. I don't know if all of them were wearing gold earrings. That's a lot of gold earrings. All right? So now look, the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. All right, that's roughly 43, 44 pounds. Of gold earrings. That's a lot of earrings. 
So I did some math because gold was trading at like $1,816 an ounce and today. And so uh, I just rounded it off just 1800 bucks an ounce. This would be the equivalent of $1.3 million today. All right. So they're throwing in plunder. The value of today in today's dollars, $1.3 million. And they throw in, notice this, 1,700 shekels of gold besides... Not to mention the crescent ornaments, okay? They had these moon crescents, okay? It's very interesting. Um, not much has changed from the Middle East in terms of symbols, the crescent moon, okay? Pendants, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. Let me say something. You know you've got a lot of money when your camel wears bling. Do you know what I'm saying to you? The Midianites had camels, and so, you know, the Israelites are like, let's take all this off. Let's take all this off the camel's necks. That's, that's, all of this is in addition to, to the $1.3 million worth of gold earrings. Quite a plunder. Thank you for joining us today here on Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of Judges. It's a great reminder to the kid inside us, to the human flesh that is a bent to fulfill its own desires. Whatever we do, someone always sees it. Nothing goes unnoticed, especially those things we wished had been overlooked. Isn't that the role of a parent, though, to discipline the behavior of sin? Jesus is the same way with the Israelite nation and us. He doesn't allow sin to go without consequence. But He's also lovingly fair and desires each one of us to return to Him. Maybe you felt like that kid who's gotten off track with God. We can't be perfect, but we can pray that we'll have the strength to do what's right and follow in God's footsteps. Are you struggling with that? Would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry located in Leesburg, Virginia, committed to sharing the love of Christ with you through sound biblical teachings that meet you where you're at. To find out more about us, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. That website again is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for listening to this edition of Cornerstone Connection.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.